appreciate uh, Pastor Jason. Did an incredible job last week with a very difficult passage. I did not assign him that passage. That is just how the dates fell. So when you hear him whine and complain, it's not my fault. I know, I know it was difficult. He mentioned the difficulty of talking about all the destruction that is coming, but we're certainly reminded of the importance of telling those without Christ about the wrath of God. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we can't just tell the good news of the gospel message. We have to tell the entire message. You know, <clears throat> excuse me, the gospel is not just about God loving you and having a wonderful plan for your life. You're not telling people a whole gospel if that's all you tell them. The gospel is that you and I and every man and woman and boy and girl are wretched sinners. And we deserve condemnation and judgment and suffering for all of eternity. But God, you know, those are the two most exciting, encouraging words in all of Scripture. Sometimes you should just do a study, look up in your accordance the words, but God. But God remembered. But God caused or, or came to his aid. But God provided. But God protected. But God had mercy, but God in his grace, but God, even though we were wretched and sinful and separated from him and deserving judgment and hell for all of eternity, but God, Romans 5, 8 says, loved us enough that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die to pay the penalty of death for us if we would repent and make him Lord. And we have to help people understand if we don't turn to him, we will experience the wrath of God. We will be destroyed by our sin, and we will suffer horribly for all of eternity. That's the message, the whole meaning of the gospel. It's not a feel-good message. It, it doesn't need to be a feel-good message. There, listen, there's no need to try to explain the love and mercy of God to someone who doesn't understand that there's wrath. We have to remember the wrath of God, and we, you and I, need to be, even after we've come to Christ, we need to be devastated by our sin and its consequences, because that drives us to the Savior. I've had several email exchanges with, with many of you through the book of Revelation, some questions and some kind of lights going off. I had one lady this last week um, that sent me an email. I want to read you just a little bit of this to help you understand the importance of what we're studying in Revelation. You may think, well, this stuff's all going to happen. I'm not going to be here. Why is it important that we know this? She writes these words. There are so many who are clueless about what's coming. I've talked to my neighbor for years about Jesus, and he's never been receptive. I shared a video teaching recently with him about the rapture and what happens to those who are left behind. That seemed to get his attention. He has at least asked for more information. That, that's why you and I need to know and understand the revelation of Jesus that was given to John for people just like that that you and I live around. Well, we've got three weeks to go, counting this morning. We're going to finish Revelation on Easter Sunday morning in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It'll be a great celebration that morning. This morning, we're in chapters 17 and 18, if you'd like to turn there. You know, we've mentioned before that, that the details, the events in Revelation are not always in chronological sequence, and chapters 17 and 18 are a good example of that. Uh, last week, Pastor Jason covered the seven bowls of wrath in chapter 16. Let me remind you of how it ended. A great earthquake, as there has never been before. Jerusalem is split into three parts. The cities of the nations fall. Islands disappear. 
No mountains can be found. You see at the very end, a hundred pound hailstones fall on people. And what do they do? Do they repent? No. They curse God for the judgment they brought on themselves. And you also see in chapter 16 that God remembers Babylon the Great to make her drink the fury of his wrath. Now, after um, the devastation of the seventh bowl that we saw last week, the next occurrence in the timeline of, of events is the second coming of the Lord Jesus and the judgment that comes with his coming. So there's, there's nothing else that's going to occur. So what we have here in chapter 17 and 18 is not a continuance of the sequence, but it's an unpacking of chapter 16, verse 19, where it says, God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, to bring clarity, you know, there's a lot of symbolism in, in Revelation. So to bring clarity of what we're going to be reading here regarding Babylon, we first need to ask the question or, or try to determine what does Babylon refer to? Is it the city that, that we know of that is mentioned in the Bible? Is it another city or does it stand for something else? Now, Babylon is the second most mentioned city in the Bible. Jerusalem, of course, tops the list, over 800 mentions of the city of Jerusalem. But Babylon, in, in second place, is mentioned in Scripture 290 times. And it's actually the most prominent subject in Revelation. In Revelation, the, the entire book consists of 404 verses. 44 of those are mentions uh, of Babylon. Now, you know, if you have studied Scripture at all or been around church or Sunday school very long, that Babylon is, in the Old Testament, the city or the Babylonians were the people that God used to punish his people when they failed to repent. And even though God used the Babylonians to punish his own people when they failed to repent, he promised that he would repay Babylon at some point for her sin. Now, technically today, um, we would say Babylon doesn't exist uh, through several circumstances of events throughout history, there are not uh, people living in the actual city of Babylon at this point, but there are a lot of small villages or a lot of uh, people around that ancient city that still inhabit that area. Uh, during Desert Storm or before Desert Storm, Saddam Hussein was actually beginning the process of excavating the ruins of Babylon, and he had plans to rebuild that into the grandest or most marvelous city in the world. But Scripture describes, and we're going to see some of this today, Scripture describes the destruction of Babylon as sudden and cataclysmic and to the point that that area is completely uninhabitable. So, since that has not yet happened the way Scripture describes it, it's certainly possible that the ancient city of Babylon will be rebuilt and it will exist during the times, the end times that we're studying uh, today. So we might be seeing, when he refers to Babylon, we might be seeing the demise of a literal city at this point. There are a lot of theories, and, and that's why these two chapters are so difficult. There are a lot of theories about what Babylon refers to. Uh, some think that Babylon, the reference is to Rome. John was writing at the time that, that Rome was a grand empire and Rome completely uh, controlled everything. He couldn't say Rome in this letter. Remember, he's already in exile, so he couldn't actually mention Rome, so perhaps Babylon was, was code for Rome. Others believe Babylon is a code word for some other entity. Some believe it's, it's code for the Roman Catholic Church. Others believe it's code for apostate Christianity. Some believe it's code for a certain city or nation. Some believe it's New York. Some believe it's Great Britain. Some believe it refers to the United States. In fact, I would gather that many of you in this room uh, who are curious about end times have read a pretty popular book that tries to refer 
uh, to the United States in what Scripture says about the fall of Babylon. Here's what I think. I think the best interpretation of the word Babylon here in Revelation is two things. It's a literal city. I think Babylon could be rebuilt, and it could be the headquarters of the Antichrist during the end times. So it's a literal city, but it's also the character or spirit of Babylon that currently exists and will pervade the world at end times. Uh, we would refer to that as Babylonianism, that, that character and that spirit. Remember the Tower of, of Babel in the Old Testament? Nimrod was the guy who founded the city of Babylon. And the, the people had been told, this was after the flood, after Noah, God had told the people that they were to scatter and replenish or repopulate the earth. But do you remember what happened there at the Tower of Babel, there in Babylon? They, they all decided they were not going to scatter. They were going to stay together and they were going to build this tower that reached the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. What were they doing? They were saying, listen, we're going to live life our way apart from God. They wanted to be their own gods. Does that sound familiar? Where did that sinful thought start? In the garden, right? I think when you really look at idolatry, you see that typically idolatry, whatever you're worshiping, the purpose of idolatry is to make your own self God, to live life the way you want to live life. And so the, the Babylonian influence and, and false religion has been a part of every world empire since then. That's what we need to think about as we see what God says about the destruction of, of Babylon. We're going to jump in in chapter 17. Uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the best way to stay focused is to have this kind of copy of Scripture in hand. Uh, I would just say to you this morning, if you're more comfortable with something electronic with your phone or some other device, I would really encourage you to either put it in airplane mode or turn off your notifications. You know, one great thing, when I'm reading from this, I don't ever get uh, text messages that pop up in the middle of my reading to distract me or Facebook post, whatever you're issue is. All right, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. The great harlot sits on many waters. Kings and inhabitants of the earth committed fornication with her. Whoa, what, what does that mean? You remember in the Old Testament that when Israel was unfaithful, God typically characterized their unfaithfulness, the worship of false gods, by saying that they were playing the harlot. Now, in contrast to that, in the New Testament, True believers in Christ are called what? They're called the bride of Christ. Why? Because that symbolizes a spiritual purity. So the harlot here he refers to in verse 17 represents all the false world religions. They exist now. They will exist then. But they're all the false world religions that are embraced by the unsaved, both before and during the, the tribulation. Now, if you wonder what many waters uh, means, if you look down at verse 15 when it says that she sits on many waters, verse 15 explains many waters as all the peoples and nations or all the world. All the world is caught up in these false religions. They're connected with the harlot. Chapter 17, verses 3 through 6, you see the description of the beast. I won't walk through that. It matches the earlier description we looked at a couple of weeks ago in chapter 13 of the Antichrist. Here's what you need to know about what he says here in verses 3 through 6. You see that the woman and the beast are in a mutually beneficial relationship. 
the woman, false religion, departures from the one true God, helps the beast rise to power, and, and the beast uh, supports the woman. You notice that she is dressed royally, and she has great wealth. You know, there's a lot of money in false religion. That's not all that that's talking about, but I think you can recognize today as you look at some of the false prophets that we see, uh, the plethora of those uh, that you can find on the internet or on television, there's great wealth in false religion. He tells us she has a cup full of abominations and filthiness, and this she offers to the world. Verse 5, her title's on her forehead. Clearly, you see from the title, she represents Babylon. Verse 6, she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. What does that mean? It means that she persecuted true believers repeatedly. Now, why, why is that? Well, true believers then and now, true believers stand in the way of false religion. True believers call out false religion. True believers don't go along with it. And so because they're calling out false religion and pointing out false religion, they're going to be persecuted. True believers also stand in the way of men who are doing evil and calling it good. That's where I think persecution is going to come in our nation. When enough true believers stand up and say the things that our government and other uh, influential people are calling good are actually evil. And, and you see some of that already. You see some groups being shut down. You see some groups being maligned. You see some groups uh, being attacked in, in various ways because they're willing to stand up and say, no, you can't call that good. That is evil. That's an abomination before God. She's drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Verses 7 through 18, the angel explains what John has just seen with this woman and the beast. You notice he says this, the beast was, is not, and will rise from the pit and go to destruction. You remember two weeks ago, we, we made point of the fact that the beast uh, sustains this mortal wound, apparently dies and is resurrected, and then yes, eventually he's going to be destroyed. And what John says here is, look, People are going to marvel at the resurrection. That's what's going to cause many of them to follow the beast because he comes back from the dead. Look at verse 8. This is a really important point for us. Who is it that marvels? Verse 8. Dwellers whose names are not written in the book of life. Listen, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know the word of God, it's very easy for Satan to deceive you and lead you astray. And that's not just true then, that's true now. We have to know the Lord and we have to know his word so we're not deceived and not led astray. Verses 10 through 14, the seven kings, of course, represent the world kingdoms. You notice he says five already existed. That was in the past at John's time. Rome is the one that currently exists at the writing of Revelation. And then he says there's going to be one final kingdom, look at this phrase, just for a little while. That final world kingdom is not going to be around very long because there is only one kingdom that is eternal. And that is the kingdom of God, and that's the kingdom you want to be sure that you're aligned with. Now, this little confusing thing here, he says the beast is the eighth kingdom, but it comes from the seventh. Well, the ten kings who, who come to power, you notice it says they're only in power for one hour. That's not a little hour, but again, it's a very short time. The kings who come to power along with the beast make up the seventh kingdom. 
They're all aligned together. But after um, this mock resurrection of the beast, the ten kings all give their power and authority to the beast. So the beast is the eighth kingdom that comes from the seventh. Look at verse 14. This is really laughable if you know the Lord. This confederation of kings is going to make war against the Lamb. We'll see next week in the Battle of Armageddon, chapter 19. They're going to make war against the Lamb. Absolutely fruitless. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. His, his kingdom is eternal. They're not going to defeat him, but they're going to make war against him. Listen, you and I need to remember when we're in difficulty, when, when life is hard, when we're going through trials, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing's going to defeat him. Nothing in your life, nothing in this world is going to defeat him. They're going to make war against him foolishly. Verses 16 and 17, this, this, is, this is so hard to understand. All of a sudden, the beast and the ten kings turn on and destroy the prostitute, the harlot. Look what it says. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. They've, they've had this symbiotic relationship, the Antichrist and, and, and the harlot, false religion, and suddenly... The Antichrist has a harlot destroyed. He, he's done with her. Now remember, she represents many false religions. And the religious culture at, at the end of time will initially be one uh, of great tolerance and acceptance. Except of true believers. You see that anywhere in our world today? In our culture today, great tolerance and acceptance. Any, any false religion will do. Everybody's religious beliefs, everybody's concept of God will be fine. But a time's going to come when, when the Antichrist, when Satan pursues his ultimate goal of being worshipped by all of creation in the same way that God is to be worshipped. Do you remember how Satan was kicked out of heaven? you remember why he was kicked out of heaven? What did he want? He wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped like God. You know, our culture today is one of great tolerance and great acceptance. You, you worship your God, I'll worship mine. He won't worship any God. She'll worship nature. And there are many people today, most people I guess I would say today, even some who claim Christ as Lord that believe it's okay to worship any God you want. Listen, why, why can't we all just get along? I mean, it's all, all these gods, it's, they're all the same, right? Well, the Antichrist is going to begin his reign letting everyone, even the Jews, initially are going to be able to worship whomever or whatever they want, but at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year tribulation, at that mark, he sets up himself, he sets up his image as the only one worthy of worship, and if you refuse, you die. And so that's what you see here in the destruction, the wiping out of the harlot of, of false religion. But here's what we need to understand about that. The destruction of the harlot in chapter 17, God's judgment on, on the Babylonian influence or, or false religion, it, it's not about the Antichrist and, and the kings turning against her and destroying her. Look at verse 17. It says, God put it in their hearts, the Antichrist and the ten kings, to carry out his purposes. Who's in control? God's in control. We've seen that all the way through Revelation. Everything that happens, everything that unfolds, everything we're unpacking is God's plan and God's 
purpose. God put it in their hearts to destroy the false religion of Babylon. What's wrong with, with, with Babylon? What's wrong with that false religion? Well, Babylonianism is always focused on man's achievement instead of God's grace. In fact, you, you probably know the word religion really refers to man's work to properly identify himself with God. What religion is all about is an emphasis on what man can do to make himself acceptable to God. And we can't make ourselves acceptable to God. Scripture is very, very clear about that. True faith, a, a biblical understanding, emphasizes human inability and the fact that we're completely dependent on the grace and the mercy of God alone. Without God's gracious act of salvation, you and I have no hope. We, we can't be properly related to God. We deserve punishment and death and eternal suffering in hell. That's not what Babylonianism, that's not what false religion teaches. And so what you see here in chapter 17 is that Babylon stands on every religious institution that is opposed to the true faith revealed in Scripture. And there are many of them in existence in our world and our culture today. So the destruction of Babylon is the destruction of all these religious systems. Now look at chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. It says there's another angel, great authority, um, he's so bright, he illumines the entire earth. He calls out in a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Twice he says fallen. That, that highlights a dual judgment, the city and the system, the religious influence, the religious Babylon, and we're going to see in chapter 18, the commercial Babylon. In chapter 17, we see the world's religious system destroyed. Here in 18, it's going to be the, the, the political and the, and the commercial, the economic systems destroyed. Why? Because those also turn people away from the true and living God. He says in verse 3, the whole world has been seduced by false religion and by a commercial system. What is that system built on? On, on pursuing your own passion, your own pleasure. Verse 4, before God rains down judgment, it's interesting, you can really uh, parallel the judgment coming on Babylon to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, in Genesis. Before God rains down judgment, look at this warning in verse 4. He says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It's interesting that he says, come out of her, my people. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. You remember that before God destroyed, Abraham had that, that thing, that bargaining with God about how many would it take for him not to destroy. Well, God sends angels to warn Lot and warn his relatives, his family of the destruction that's coming, and they come and warn him, and yet the only people willing to separate from evil and leave with Lot were his two unmarried daughters and his wife, and you remember his wife was somewhat reluctant. Literally, an angel is pulling her out of the city, but her heart, she didn't want to leave. Her heart was still in that place. In fact, as judgment began to fall and the angel pulling her out of the city warned her not to even look back, she looked back and she lost her life. God is warning these people in verse 4, that they need to separate from evil, they need to leave this place, and he calls them my people. 
Listen, there are many unsaved people who are going to come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. And I'm going to say it again. I think the reason it's so important we understand this book and we explain it to our lost friends and neighbors and family, we may not see them come to Christ, but perhaps when they have the information we've given them, or they at least know they need to go like this man, the lady in the email talked about, they at least need to ask for more information, perhaps some of them will still have opportunity to come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. Life is going to be very difficult for those who do. There's going to be temptation. There's, there's going to be opportunity to compromise because compromising with the false world religions and the false world systems will, will help ease their troubles and provide protection. But God is warning them here, look, you need to get out. You need to get away. You need to have nothing to do with the evil of this world. That's what he's saying to them then, but, but we always need to ask the question, is there something here that he's saying to us today? You know, from the time of Lot all the way through history, including our time, all the way to the tribulation, believers are always going to find themselves facing the temptation to compromise. It's going to happen in our family, going to happen in our neighborhood, going to happen in our workplace, just, just to go along. And so the word to us is we need to be careful not to participate in the world's systems, not to think and behave like those who are unsaved. Paul in Ephesians 5.11 said it this way, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We're not supposed to go along. We're not supposed to be quiet and just get along. John, who, who wrote this vision of Revelation, John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17 said, Don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. We're to be a holy people. We're to be set apart. We're to be separate from the world. Just for balance, I need to say, separation does not mean isolation. We're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're not to be isolated. We're to be insulated. You know, during the last year, you've probably known many people, maybe you even yourself, have either isolated or quarantined yourself. Why did you isolate or quarantine? To stop the spread, right? We're not supposed to stop the spread of the gospel. And if anything, during our time, we need to increase the spread of the gospel while there's still time for people to respond and to come to Christ. We don't want to participate in the sins of the world, and we want to have, even as we're calling out the sins of the world, we want to have compassion on sinners. We have to speak the truth about sin. We can't be quiet about it just because it's not a popular thing to say. But we're called to love the sinner and out of love for the sinner to speak the truth. I have no problem telling someone living in any kind of sin, any lifestyle of sin, I have no problem sitting down and having a conversation with them and pointing out their sin in love and grace. And I've never had someone get angry with me 
because I pointed out their sin, because I didn't do it in a condescending, condemning kind of way. I pointed it out in love and grace out of concern for the destruction they're bringing on their own life. That's why God hates sin, the way it destroys us. He doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sin because it destroys the sinner. Our separation is about our love for holiness and our desire to have right fellowship with God. It's, it's what he's called us to. It's not about getting away from sinful people. But he says, separate from them. It's talking about the sin, the world systems that they're in that are pulling them away from God. Verses 6 through 8 describe the extent of the judgment that's coming. He says, every evil deed will be repaid. Look at verse 7. Look at the incredible arrogance of Babylon, of Babylonianism. I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. What's that talking about? Well, in New Testament times, when a woman was widowed, unless she had family to take care of her, unless she was able to remarry and have another husband, that woman had a very difficult life. She was ostracized in society. She couldn't provide for herself or, or children if she had children. And so when, when Babylonianism says, I'm no widow, I won't see mourning, it's basically, I've got this, I don't need a husband, I don't need God. It's a, it's a misguided self-confidence. And so you see, in one day, destruction comes. Look what happens following that destruction. We're told that kings and other nations mourn. Why? Because they're linked with Babylon. The prosperity that they enjoy is because of their affiliation with Babylon. Verses 11 through 20, you see the reactions of various groups associated with Babylon. The merchants who sold the goods. You see an incredible list of, of goods there. The, the captains, the sea captains who transported the goods. Listen, they're not weeping over their sin. They're not weeping over the wrath of God that has fallen. The reason they're weeping is the entire global economic system has been destroyed, and so their wealth has gone up in smoke. That's what they're weeping about. That's what they're upset about. Look at all the commodities listed in verses 12 and 13. Look all the way down the list. Look at the last item. See the last item that they're getting wealthy from? Slaves human souls. At the time that God penned, or excuse me, that John penned Revelation, there were six million slaves in the capital city. A third of the entire city were slaves, and in the entire empire, about a quarter of the entire empire were slaves. That's the desire for wealth and luxury at its worst. That's materialism out of control when you're even selling humans for a profit. I believe Revelation is a, is a timeless message, and when I read that one thing in Revelation, it, it makes me think about the level of slavery in our day. The dramatic increase in human trafficking and the, and the sex trade, and, and for a long time in America, we've assumed it didn't exist here. We've done nothing about it. We haven't spoken about it. Verses 21 to 24, one final symbolic action. It says a mighty angel picks up a boulder the size of a large millstone and throws it into the sea. Babylon is violently thrown down. And, and that boulder sinks, meaning the condition's permanent. And, and you can imagine when a boulder that size hits the water, there are huge ripples. The destruction 
when it comes is going to be noticeable. But look in verses 22 and 23. All those everyday events that are no longer going to happen because Babylon is completely destroyed, but up to the point of destruction, all those things are happening. Why? Because those things will keep the unsaved world occupied, not knowing that judgment is about to fall on them. Think about the, the first global judgment mentioned in the Bible in the book of Genesis. You remember what it was? Flood. People had lots of time. Noah was a faithful preacher of righteousness. But the world just kept on partying and doing life, rejected all the warning signs. So John's warning to believers in his day was not to compromise despite the difficulty they were going to face for being followers of Christ. So what, what is the judgment? Chapter 17 and 18 here in Revelation, what is, what is the indictment and the judgment of Babylon say to us today? What, what, what application is there to the church today, to the contemporary church? Well, we've got to remember we're called to be salt and light to a dying world, and the only way that we can be salt and light is to be sure that we keep ourselves from being defiled by the world systems, not only the false religion, but, but the defilement of the economic system, the political system, the commercial system. We have to keep the church pure. You know, the reason the church does not have more impact in our society today is, for the most part, the church is not very pure. Most churches look just like the culture that they're in. How can you be salt? How can you be light when you look exactly like the culture that's around you? We're called to keep the church pure. We're called to follow this book, these instructions, completely and explicitly. We can't compromise the truth, but at the same time, we have to demonstrate the compassion that, that Christ did. Individually, we have to keep ourselves pure and recognize that we can't be dependent on the things of the world because that's going to cause us to become idolatrous. Listen, I, I'm not saying this morning that the, that the use and appreciation of material goods is sinful. It's when that becomes an obsession, and it is in our nation. Because that obsession of, for materialism makes it our God, and, and we become idolaters. Here's a really simple application if you just need one to, to walk away with this morning. It sums up what, what John has warned about here in the 17th and 18th chapters. It's Paul's word in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is how you renew your mind. You got thoughts, you have concepts, you have beliefs that don't belong there. You, you can't just erase them. You renew your mind. You replace them with the truth of the word of God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God.
We live in a day where it's more important than ever that we be separated, that we not be conformed, but we be transformed, that we're salt and light, that we're keeping ourselves pure, that we're making a difference in the culture that we're in, needed more than ever because so many have no idea of what is about to come and so many have no idea of how to be prepared. And we've got the answer, but they will only hear the answer if we don't look just like the culture.